Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we continue our study, beginning in verse 1, it says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also is vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces I acquired, male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from, from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was empty, meaningless, vanity, grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. In chapter one, we learned about a preacher and a king. And remember, we believe him to be Solomon and the preacher embarks on a journey. He asks and answers the questions about the meaning and the purpose of life. And the chapter contains a description of the man in, in chapter one, verse one, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. In verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Jerusalem. We learned about his mission in verse 13. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. His qualifications in verse 16. I communed with my heart saying, look, I've attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. So we looked at a description of the man, his mission, his qualifications his extraordinary wisdom, his unprecedented wealth, his initial findings, the bitter truth that welled up inside of him. It was that sinking suspicion that life might be meaningless, that there's no purpose in life. No new thing in verses 9 through 10. No cure for the void in verse 15. No lasting honor in verse 11 because of the idea that you're going to die and that everything that you do is going to disappear anyway. So in the first chapter, we discover that wisdom, at least apart 
from God, human wisdom, human knowledge is apart from God at best futile. And so now the preacher embarks on a journey of trying to find meaning and purpose and peace in a new direction. Since it's not in knowledge or wisdom, he's going to entertain the idea that pleasure might work, building projects might work, the accumulation of possessions might work, including slaves in verse 7, herds and flocks in verse 7, silver and gold in verse 8, his own human iPod, gifted musicians, beautiful concubines, a worldwide reputation in verse 9. Total personal indulgence in verse 10. And these empty delusions are going to bring him to a dramatic conclusion in verse 11. So he journeys from delusion to a different conclusion in the first chapter intellectualism is dealt a nasty blow. And in the second chapter, hedonism is stripped and exposed as being empty and ugly. And if the meaning of life or pleasure can't be found in wisdom, he entertains the idea of wild living or wealth or work. What is it that will quench the thirst, what will provide meaning and purpose. In the second chapter, the preacher tests life in verses 1 through 11. And, and he is going to, in a sense, come to hate life in verses 12 through 23. And then he's going to come to this amazing conclusion to accept life in verses 24 through 26. You know, in polite conversation, people say, what's up? And we say, hey, look around. What's new? Listen up. What's wrong? Learn. That's what's happening even at this particular moment in the passage. I know that you're capable of doing more than one thing at a time. I know that each and every person listening to the sound of my voice has the ability to process what I'm saying. But even as you're processing what I'm saying, I want you to begin to ask yourself these questions throughout the message. Just begin to make mental notes as, as you hear me continue. Ask yourself this question. How important is pleasure to me? How do I find pleasure? And begin to be specific in your own life. Just begin to make a mental checkpoint. This is what I find satisfying. This is what I find pleasurable. This is what I find important. And be specific. And, and then ask yourself the question, how am I to balance the fact that God has given me all things to enjoy without living simply to enjoy? Now, here's the challenge. If true happiness is not found apart 
from God, then what is it inside of our mind and what is it inside of our heart and what is it inside of our thinking that constantly lures us into this false sense that I'm missing something, that there's an empty space that's missing inside of my life. Why do I continue to crave meaning and purpose and significance apart from my friendship and my relationship with the Lord Jesus? What is it? Why do I crave laughter and amusement and pleasure and recognition and accumulation and stimulation? And I think you're going to discover something. That even if someone came up to you and said, what is meaningful? What is purposeful? What is significant in your life? Even though you could give the right answer. I know that life is found in Christ. I know that life is found in forgiveness. I know that the future is found in Christ. I know that everything that I see and I know that everything that we do here is going to one day disappear. As you ask yourself those questions, just continue to listen. Look what it says in verse one. I call verses one through three born to be wild. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this is also vanity. Now here, when he says, I said in my heart, the word said means to make a decision in the Hebrew language. And come now means to incite or motivate. The NIV translates this. I'm going to test you with pleasure. But the preacher isn't so much testing Pleasure, as he's testing himself. Mirth translates the Hebrew word simcha. And it means a kind of a superficial amusement or what we might even say fun. That's a word that we use in our culture and in our society. Cindy Lauper popularized it with the song, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Now, what, what exactly does that mean? It's simcha. They want to have fun. Now, simcha is sometimes thoughtful pleasure. There's nothing wrong with the word. As a matter of fact, it was a word that was used to describe the joy that you experience when you participate in the festivals. Rosh Hashanah. Sukkot, all of the festivals, there, there were certain kinds of festivals that brought about a sense of reflection and introspection. And that's what it is here in part. Now, clearly, wisdom and education is better than foolishness and ignorance. And later, the preacher is going to conclude that wisdom is better at least in the short run, but not for long in verses 12 through 17. The the, the preacher says, look, wisdom is good. And if you use your wisdom to accumulate wealth, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But in the end, it's probably a bad thing because you're going to die and somebody else is going to enjoy your wealth. And so the preacher's attention turns to amusement. He says, let's have some laughs. Let's just enjoy ourselves. And by the way, remember, he's living in a world of endless possibilities. 
because he's the wealthiest man and because he's the most secure man, he, he can indulge whatever whim that he wants to. Some of you know Greg Laurie. He's popular with the Harvest Crusades. He's a friend of mine. And we were coming up, we were amusing ourselves one day. And he, and, uh, he said, let's do, let's pretend, let's have some fun. Let's do famous people singing silly songs. And so I said, okay, how about Billy Graham singing? Wild thing. You make my heart sing. You make everything groovy. Wild thing, think I love you. Yeah, that's a great day. He started, he starts laughing. Because he wants to have some fun. Can you imagine doing a stand-up routine in Solomon's temple? I thought about that. I thought, I, I, imagine if I'm coming on stage and there's Solomon and all of the people are going, okay, live from Jerusalem. And I tell you, okay, let me tell you guys a story about Samson and Delilah, okay? Samson walks into a diner. It's about 9.58 and he sits down next to Delilah at the counter and he stares up at the TV and the 10 o'clock news is ready to come on and the news crew is covering the story of a man on the ledge of Dagon's temple and he's on top of the building and he's getting ready to jump. And Delilah looks at Samson and says, Do you think he'll jump? And Samson says, You know, I think he will jump. And Delilah says, well, I bet he doesn't. And Bob says, okay, I'm going to place a hundred shekels on the bar. I think he's going to jump. And just as Delilah placed her money on the counter, the guy on the ledge did a swan dive off the building, falling to his death. And Delilah was understandably upset, but she handed over the shekels to Samson and said, fair's fair, here's your money. And Samson says, look, I can't take your money. I saw this earlier on the five o'clock news. I knew that he was going to jump. And Delilah said, I did too, but I didn't think he'd do it again. I know, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking exactly what... Solomon was thinking, hey, look, it's good for a laugh, but in the end, what good is it? By the way, what nation in the world do you suppose is the happiest? I saw a report on CNN. They did a survey of 97 countries by the World Values Survey. And according to this, Denmark more than any other country, had the happiest people. I, I printed it out. It gave me the story highlights. It says, Denmark is the world's most content nation, according to a new study on global well-being. But the good news is, despite the credit crunch and rising fuel and food prices, all of us are getting happier. Researchers at the University of Michigan said, Denmark's prosperity, stability, and democratic government placed the country at the top of the rankings. But guess who followed? Colombia, Canada, Puerto Rico, Iceland were all in the top ten. The United States, the world's richest nation, 16th. Britain, 21st. Zimbabwe, 97th. 
So why were some happy and some sad? Here's what it said. By the way, almost all of the countries that were at the bottom of the list had authoritarian rule, widespread poverty, Moldova, Armenia, with long histories of repressive governments, trumped Iraq for misery, which placed seventh. Can you imagine? How did that happen? How did Iraq wind up being seventh on the list? Here's what they were asked. Taking all things together, would you say that you're very happy, rather happy, not very happy, or not at all happy? All things considered, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole? The answer to those questions is what determined the placement on the list. Thomas Adams said, our mind is where our pleasure is. Our heart is where our treasure is. Our love is where our life is. But all of these pleasure, treasure and life are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon writes, I tried laughing. I tried mirth. But this was vanity. I sought Pleasure, but hedonism came up empty. As a matter of fact, look at verse two again. He, I said of laughter, madness and of mirth. What does it accomplish? Now, I know, you know. That I love to laugh. And I know you love to laugh. When I first came to Denver, I didn't have a job. And so I did a stand up routine at the comedy store. You know what my routine was? I did famous people singing silly songs. I did a routine where this was at a time, this was a long time ago. And this was at a time when um, what's his name? He was the former heavyweight champion of the world. No, not Muhammad Ali. It wasn't that far back. Yeah, Michael Tyson. Michael Tyson was the champion. And I said, okay. As a matter of fact, it was, over 20, it was 20 years ago, and Michael Tyson had actually just gone to prison for sexual assault. And so I did Michael Tyson doing rap. I said, as most of you know, I'm no longer the heavyweight champion of the world. So I've decided to become a WAP singer. So, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together. And I had him start clapping, and I said, now, ladies, I've seen you at the beauty salon, cutting hair off and gluing it on, pressing your nails in the latest style. I'll laugh about you for a while. Yes, it was stupid. Then I did a whole scene from The Princess Bride. I played every character in the movie. I literally had someone come up on the stage blindfolded her, put a knife to her neck, and recreated the scene from The Princess Bride where Vincini goes, you bested my giant, which means you must have great strength. But you also defeated my Spaniard, which means you must have studied. And in studying, you discovered that life is mortal, and therefore you stopped that cup away from your heart possible. And remember, he goes, truly your intellect is dizzying. Can ever hear of Socrates? Plato morons. So I did this whole scene, right? And then the last part of the routine was 
I've laughed in over a hundred different languages. I literally had people cry out from the audience. I said, you name a language, I can laugh in that language. And so someone goes, German! And I go, these fancy... I said, Germans laugh, but it's really not sincere. It's... Like, remember the scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark where... Who captures the goat? You're killing the girl. I'll tell you everything. <laughs> I know you will. And then I had him, you know, cry out other languages like Japanese or Chinese or whatever. And uh, I said, you know, look, when you're laughing in Chinese, it's different from Japanese. And in Chinese, when you laugh in the language, you have to hold the last syllable. So when you're laughing in Chinese, you go, Why did you Wow. But when you laugh in Japanese, you have to cut the last syllable short so that you go, And then I told him how I learned to laugh in all of these different languages was growing up in Southern California, standing in line at Disneyland. So when he says laughter, madness, you know what the word madness here means? It just means a loss of judgment. It means you would rather laugh than face the realities of life. And that's Solomon's point. Laughing drowns sorrow. In a sea of frivolity and the root of the word meant to lose a sense of judgment. And so when he says, what does it accomplish? Of course, he's talking about the fundamental change. He's talking about what does it do? What does it really do? What happens when you laugh? And you know what happens when you laugh. The pain goes away just for a moment. It goes away. It it, it, it serves almost like an, like an anesthesia. But it's a kind of a rhetorical question. Whether the amusement comes from something simple or whether it comes from something fairly complex, whatever the amusement is, what does it accomplish? And you know, it's, it's an interesting question. And it all depends on who you ask. Dwight David Eisenhower said, laughter can relieve tension. It can soothe the pain of disappointment. It can strengthen the spirit for the formidable task that lies ahead. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. It is not wrong to laugh. The skeptic and atheist Friedrich Nietzsche said, perhaps I know best why it is man alone who laughs. He alone suffers so deeply that he had to invent laughter. That's the perspective of a person who's not saved. I understand that. If you... See the tragic lives of comedians. How many of them do you know who wind up in circumstances so profoundly difficult that they wind up killing themselves? 
Remember what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us all things richly to enjoy. The Hebrew people understood something, that there is a right way of thinking about everything that God has given to you. And by the way, it is God who gave you the capacity to laugh. It's not Satan. You know, when the Taliban took over Afghanistan, they almost immediately outlawed pleasure. Roger Kipling wrote, teach us delight in simple things and mirth that has no bitter springs. Forgive this free of evil done and love to all men neath the sun. In Proverbs 14, 13, Solomon will later write, even in laughter, the heart may sorrow and the end of mirth may be grief. Laughter can break the monotony of crying and pleasure is the only brief interlude before the next painful event for many, many people. And so when amusement failed. He creates his own comedy club and he tries to laugh. And, 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 and I'm going to suggest something to you that when he gathers the greatest entertainers in the world to amuse him, I'm going to suggest to you that Solomon let out with some full on belly laughs. But when pleasure didn't work, he set his sights on wine Look at verse 3. I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. The preacher's on a quest. I search in my heart. And by the way, this search is a diligent search. But remember, it's a persistent search and it's a diligent search, but it's confined to gratify my flesh while guiding my heart till I might see what was good for the sons of men. And here you see the, the phrase again, to do under heaven. Why is that important? Because, again, his evaluation is limited. Not to heaven. Not to the supernatural, not to the things that come from revelation, but rather the way people live their lives in the real world. Laughter can serve as a non-alcoholic intoxicant. But Solomon has access to the best vineyards and to the best wine. And I'm going to suggest something to you. When he says, I searched in my heart to gratify my flesh, guiding my heart with wisdom, he isn't some slobbering drunk. He isn't the ancient version of a skid row panhandler. So when you see that particular phrase and you see his, his exploration of intoxicants, I'm going to suggest to you that he isn't a slobbering drunk. He's, he's a wine connoisseur. He keeps his heart wise and his wits about him. Meaningful life, abundant life. 
He wants to know exactly how he can explore the variations in wine and alcoholic beverages. Remember, alcohol is the drug of choice, not just simply in our culture. It was the drug of choice in many cultures for thousands of years. The sophisticated doctor and even the cultured Christian will take a little wine for his stomach's sake. A glass of wine or a bottle of beer isn't harmful in and of itself. It's the buzz and the merry medicine that numbs the pain and smothers the embarrassing questions about the past or the future. It isn't just the little drink at dinner It's the buzz that you receive and then the permission that you give to drink a little more and to drink a little more and to drink a little more until you finally find yourself in a situation where you have a problem. Every once in a while, the government in our country will release a a disturbing statistic about alcohol and alcohol abuse or a police officer will show disturbing films about teens killing themselves in drunk driving accidents or a mother will give her heartbreaking testimony of what it's like to live without her child who's died because of a drunk driver. And you read the the statistics, 50,000 Americans die each year from drunk driving related accidents. That doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of, of the lives that are destroyed and the families that are destroyed. And then the popular culture and the popular films and the popular songs celebrate, inebriate, intoxicate a new generation. But Solomon knew the truth. He knew the truth that alcohol is empty. You see, our culture isn't the first culture to say the words, if it feels right, do it. We are a pleasure-oriented culture. It was Dr. W. H. Griffith Thomas who wrote, There are certain elements of daily life which are not sinful in and of themselves, but which have a tendency to lead to sin if they are abused. Abuse literally means extreme use, and in many instances, overuse of things lawful becomes sin. Pleasure is lawful in use, but unlawful in abuse. It's not wrong to feel pleasure. But it is wrong when pleasure becomes your God, the thing that you live for. You've probably heard me say over and over again, is it a sin to eat? No, but can you eat in such a way that you dishonor God? Yeah, once you there's a certain point that you reach and then your flesh goes, give me more. And the next bite becomes gluttony. Is it wrong to drink? No, but can you drink in such a way that you dishonor God? Yeah, it's called drunkenness. Is it wrong to have emotions? Of course not. God created you to be an emotional person. But you can express those emotions in a way that dishonor God. Is sexual behavior wrong? No, God created us to have husbands and wives. But you can express it in such a way that you dishonor God. And that's the point that's being made. 
Years ago, there was an article in USA Today, undercover agents for the Arizona Department of Fish and Game arrested several people for toad licking. They had in their possession the Colorado River toad. It was its scientific name, Bupo, Alvarez. This toad, which is found from the Mexican border to the Grand Canyon, deters predators by secreting a milky white substance that includes a powerful drug classified as a psychoactive agent under Arizona law. Drug aficionados get high by either licking the toads directly or drying the secretion and then smoking it. One Arizona official warned that the drug is, quote, poisonous and dangerous. An addiction to pleasure is a sinful condition that can lead you into sinful activities. So what do you do when the party's over? That's what Solomon had to deal with. He, he, he was reminded that after every drink and then after every party, there's the day after. The famous Puritan Thomas Watson said, What fools are they who for a drop of pleasure drink a sea of wrath? Can you imagine? You lick a toad. i got to admit, when I was a kid growing up, there wasn't a whole lot that I wouldn't do to try to get high. But even I couldn't bring myself to lick a toad. <laughs> so he goes from pleasure to work. Look what he says in verse 4. I made my works great. I built myself houses. I planted myself vineyards. Human wisdom and wild living failed. So now think about it. Chapter one, human wisdom will satisfy me empty. Wild living will satisfy me empty. And so Solomon will try his hand at good old fashioned work. Maybe if I accomplish something that will fill the void. So Solomon turns his considerable genius to building. Look what he says. I enlarged my works, is what it literally says. Solomon was famous for building. The preacher will focus on the house of the Lord later in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It is Solomon who will build a magnificent temple to the Lord, but he doesn't mention it here. And by the way, that magnificent temple will be destroyed on the 8th of Av. You know what day that is? today. It's today. Rosh Hashanah. The Jewish New Year. The Babylonians came in. Nebuchadnezzar came in and he tore down the building. The building was rebuilt during the time of Ezra. Nehemiah. Remember? The temple is rebuilt and then it's built over a period of generations and it isn't even completed until after the time of the physical ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills his ministry. He lives, he dies, he rises from the dead and within 30 years on Rosh Hashanah on, the, on this day, today, this day in 70 AD, the temple was torn down again. He was famous for building. 
over and over again, the preacher is going to repeat a refrain. These were my works. This is my house, my vineyards. We might even say that we could translate this six times between verses four and eight. You can underline it for yourself six times. He writes, these were my things, my vineyards. Think of it this way for myself. In other words, he's saying, "Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it for myself. Think legacy. Now the preacher is going to move from the subject of enjoyment to employment. He says, I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. And by the way, in the ancient world, kings and nobility were noted for their opulent gardens and orchards. Nebuchadnezzar had one of the wonders of the world that he planted. The gardens would contain the choicest plants, but more than just incredible, opulent lush gardens. It was privacy. And in verse six, he said, I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. Now, we have ample evidence from antiquity of pools and reservoirs. Solomon built vast gardens, sophisticated irrigation systems. The trees, by the way, that were used weren't just simply to provide for his fairly large house, but the trees were used for building. The trees were used for making ships. The trees were made for musical instruments. The trees were used for shade. Work isn't wrong either. And again, the point that is being made isn't that work is wrong or that pleasure is wrong or that reason is wrong, but it's reason apart from God and it's pleasure apart from God and it's work apart from God. That's the point that he's making. Work isn't wrong. We know that the Bible says if you don't work, you don't. That's right. Another news paper story, a 36-year-old resident of New York was quoted as saying, quote, I like to live decent. I like to be clean, unquote. And there's nothing wrong with that. The problem was he didn't like to work. So he found other ways to live decent. He would walk into a restaurant. He would order the most expensive thing on the menu, the choicest liqueur. And when the check arrived, you know what he would do? He would just shrug his shoulders and wait for the police to arrive. The sometimes homeless man actually wanted to go to jail so he could get three meals a day and a clean bed. He pled guilty to stealing from restaurants 31 times. He served 90 days at Rikers Island for filching a meal from a cafe in Rockefeller Center, New York taxpayers paid a quarter of a million dollars over five years to feed and clothe and house one lazy man. Ask any Christian. Hey, do you think work is a valid place to find ultimate meaning for your life? You know what they'll say? No. You're not going to find ultimate meaning in life by your job. But their schedules say something else. Some people think that a full schedule will somehow mask an empty life. You know why I think some people have a full schedule? 
It's because those creepy questions keep coming up. Does my life matter? Does it have meaning? Does it have significance? What value has it? You know, I think some people are afraid to ask the big questions because they're afraid of the answer that they'll come up with. Particularly if the answer is, hey, the answer can't be in the Bible and the answer can't be in Jesus and the answer can't be in forgiveness of sin. That can't be the answer. By the way, do you know how many of Solomon's building projects survived into this century? Zero. Zero. There's some evidence that part of the ruins might have remained somewhere for the original temple. I've been in parts of northern Israel where, where scholars believe that they found bits and pieces of Solomon's stables. And then verse 7, look what it says. I acquired male and female servants. I had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than anyone who was in Jerusalem before me. He was way more wealthy than his dad. And to keep the vast enterprise of his life going, he had to have lots and lots of human labor. And so he bought slaves. And those slaves produced more slaves. And in verse 8 it says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold. I had the special treasures of kings and of provinces. I acquired male and female singers. Now think about this. He has his own band. You have an iPod. And you might say, I can put 5,000 songs on my iPod. And Solomon would say, hey, I'm going to hire 3,000 singers. By the way, it wasn't unusual in those days to hire an orchestra to play at the banquets. The delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. The riches of Solomon were legendary. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14, it says, The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 660 and six talents of pure gold. Isn't that number interesting? Six, six, six. You know why it's interesting? Not just simply because it's the mark of the beast or the Antichrist. But six is the number of a man. Six is just one short of seven. Six, six, six came to mean all that a human could accomplish. And by the way, the talent was the amount of money that you could make in a lifetime. And so 666 talents of pure gold is what you could make if you lived 666 lives in a single year. Now, when I did the math, the current gold prices... This would mean that Solomon's yearly wage was $750 million a year. Now, that's not to mention the silver portion of his salary. As a matter of fact, according to the book of Kings, there was so much silver in the kingdom that they used to use it like dirt. In other words, silver was as common as rocks. And by the way, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, how common are rocks? Very common. You can't go anywhere without finding a rock. As a matter of fact, in 1 Kings 10.23, it says, King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches. He had spices from Arabia and India. 
sandalwood and ivory from India, stones from Africa, cedars from Lebanon. He had 40,000 stalls for his chariot horses, 12,000 horsemen, food, textiles, expensive animals, amazing manuscripts. I want you to imagine a person who has everything. And then I want you to imagine another person who has almost everything and then combine them together and you have Solomon. So here's the question. How is it possible with, for one person who has so much to be so completely dissatisfied? How do you explain that? Chuck Swindoll writes, Solomon's motives were completely selfish. He did it all for himself. In fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, Solomon makes no fewer than, actually in chapter 2, verses 4 through, through the whole chapter, he makes no fewer than 35 references to himself in all that he did. He, he says, this, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. And not even one time does he mention God. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, right, we're reading the Bible. This is the Bible. You'd think that they would mention God a little bit more. But remember, this is written from a purely human perspective. In the 20th century, C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them. It came through them. And what good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the heart of the worshiper. For they, not the thing itself, they are the scent of the flower we have found, the echo of the scent of the flower that we have not found, the echo of the tune that we have not heard, news from a country that we have not visited, unquote. And I love that because what, he, what Lewis is saying is that when you want stuff, when you want stuff, when you want to smell the fragrance or taste the beauty or make the experience or hear the song, we want to smell heaven's flowers. We want to hear the angels sing. We want to know them. That our sins are forgiven. And so everywhere we go and everything that we do, we're trying, we're trying to see heaven, to smell its gardens, to taste its food, to enter into its eternity. And that's what Solomon wanted. He wants God. He wants all that heaven has to offer, but he is unwilling to trust God and to submit to God and to obey God. And so when you're trying to fill the void, when you're trying to fill the hole and you taste that taste and you feel that feeling, you work that job, you do the thing that it is that you think that you need to do. And Solomon admits, I became great. I excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. The greatness, by the way, refers, I think, to his wealth and his wealth increased. And even as his wealth increased, his wisdom increased. In other words, wisdom here isn't just simply the ability to make a wise choice. 
Remember here, wisdom means every ability to think things through to the logical conclusion. The preacher's not claiming that this is godly wisdom. This is his way of saying, I had my wits about me even as I'm taking the journey to try and figure out if life really matters. And it says in verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. My heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was the reward from all my labor. In other words, when he's speaking of eyes, he's looking on the outside. And when he's speaking of the heart, he's looking on the inside. And here's what he's basically saying everything that I could want on the inside and everything that I could see on the outside, I was able to do it and not withhold anything from myself. And by the way, one translation says, for my heart found pleasure. In other words, I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. Michael Eaton writes, quote, It is better, however, to take it as an emphatic assertion, quote, indeed, my heart found pleasure. The NIV says that yet the verse ends on a darker note. It was it was the sheer activity that gave satisfaction, the achievement. In other words, think about this. What he's saying is I did everything and I did everything and I did everything and I did everything. And then the pleasure started to fade. My father used to say that he would come home. I say, Dad, where have you been? And he goes, you know, I've been everywhere from Maine to Spain. I've been everywhere. I've done everything. And none of it, none of it matters. Then I looked, verse 11, on all the works that my hands had done, on all the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Look again in verse 11. Then I looked. Even though it doesn't look like much to you, this could be translated, I put my face on its face. Literally, that's what it says. I face. Or I considered or I surveyed. The verb means to look someone directly in the eye. I think what it means here. I believe that it's an idiomatic expression, which means I woke up and I began to face the facts. That's the expression that we use, don't we? I woke up. And I began to face the facts. In the end, Solomon had to wake up each morning and look in the mirror of his own polished extravagance. He looked at everything that he acquired. He looked at everything that he'd done. He looked at everything that he accomplished. And the emptiness. And the unforgiveness. And the estrangement was still there. And the frustration begins to add up. Look at how he piles the words on top of each other. Toiled, vanity, grasping for the wind, no profit. Doesn't each one of those words sound like a synonym for disillusionment? You know, I've mentioned Ernest Hemingway in past messages. On any given day. You could find Ernest Hemingway drinking the finest Bordeaux in Paris, hunting grizzly bears in Alaska, watching bullfights in Spain, sport fishing in Florida or Cuba. 
And then one day the darkness caught up with him. The emptiness caught up with him and overwhelmed him. Here's what a suicide note read. Quote, life is just one damn thing after another. Unquote. Empty. 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 We want to believe so bad that our wisdom, we want to believe that our wealth, we want to think that our lifestyle, we want to think that our accomplishment will give us distinction or significance. Derek Kidner said, What spoils the pleasures of life for us is our hunger to get out of them more than they can deliver. Getting eternal and ultimate meaning out of the temporal and temporary pursuits. It's destined to fail. David Jeremiah writes, We try stuffing runaway materialism into the empty pockets of our souls, but the pockets have holes in them, and we never achieve a feeling of real existential satisfaction. Jesus summed it up this way. One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses, Luke 12, 15, but even as Christians, we challenge the belief. And we want to test the limits. In the first chapter, the preacher says, intellectualism won't fill the hole in your heart. In the second chapter, he's going to say, pleasure, hedonism, won't fill the hole in your heart. But guess what? His inquiry and exploration into the question, does my life matter? It's only just begun. We've got a whole lot more to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord. Lord, we know that we can say the right words and even think the right thoughts and answer the right questions. We know that we say that there's life in Jesus and there's meaning in Jesus and there's significance in Jesus and there's joy in Jesus, that there's peace in Jesus, that there's hope in Jesus, that there's life and eternal life in Jesus. Why then, Lord, are so many people so unhappy and so empty and still looking? Lord, what is it inside of us where we think that one more pleasure, one more possession, one more sensual feeling will somehow fill the void when we know that it only leads to disillusionment and disenchantment? That we wind up covering up the emptiness that's inside of our hearts. And we try to hide the truth about our emptiness. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person. I pray for that person who's trying to fill the hole. 
and still coming up empty. Who for whatever reason, Lord, they may have prayed a prayer and they may have even walked down the aisle and they may have even read their Bible. But for some reason, the emptiness looms large deep inside of their heart. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, they could come to grips that real meaning, real life, real truth, real love, real forgiveness, real hope is found in Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would turn from that empty, wicked, selfish pursuit and come home. Come home. In Jesus' name, amen.